This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hello, my name is Christopher Karani. I'm an intellectual property attorney at the law firm of McAndrews, Held, and Malloy in Chicago. Today, I'm going to be speaking about design patent infringement, and particularly about the famed case Gorham v. White, which was before the Supreme Court in 1872. The subtitle to this presentation is How One Man's Spoon Revolutionized U.S. Design Law. In order to fully appreciate the case of Gorham v. White and its impact, I believe it's necessary to set the Wayback Machine back to 1872 and explore exactly what was going on in the United States at that time. I believe that it informs the decision. Firstly, we know that uh, from 1861 to 1865, was the United States Civil War, and the country was torn apart. It was a long and brutal war. Thereafter, the country enters into what we call the Reconstruction Era, and many Americans were looking to move on with their lives and pined for the finer things in life, such as those which were being celebrated in Western Europe, fashion, music, art, and design. Interestingly, in the art world, we know that this was the birth period are the flourishing of the Impressionism period. For instance, Claude Monet's Impression Sunrise was in 1872, the very year that the Gorham v. White decision comes down. So who was Mr. John Gorham? John Gorham was quite a famed designer of housewares, be them platters, plateware, flatware. He was also so famous that he was known as the purveyor to his majesty. Now, when we're saying to His Majesty, we're not talking in the U.S., Mr. Gorham, while exhibiting some of his goods in Paris at an exhibition, the Majesty from Belgium had noticed his goods and selected Mr. Gorham to be the purveyor to His Majesty for flatware and plateware in his palace. My research has revealed that Mr. Gorham also supplied his plateware and silverware to Ulysses S. Grant in the United States White House. So at the time, in the 1860s, the Flatware and plateware, which was the issue in the Gorham v. White case, was typically very ornate. It was a Victorian-style flatware. For instance, on the handles of plateware, it would not be uncommon to find a lion's head or an elephant's head or a sheep's head engraved into the flatware on the handle on the flatware. Well, Mr. Gorham wanted to go a different direction, and his design that he came out with, which was called the cottage design, and that particular design differed greatly from the Victorian, the very ornate Victorian designs, in that it was much a minimalist design. Although there was some scrolling on the handle of the flatware, it was not nearly that which the society had become accustomed to with respect to the Victorian design. Indeed, the Gorham's Cottage design was such a resounding success that in Harper's new monthly magazine, uh, they touted the design as, quote, the single most successful design of its kind ever achieved. It was designed in a happy moment, as they said. Gorham seized upon the opportunity and realized that this was a successful design and sought design patent protection. His design patent was issued, and it was number D1440. If you view the accompanying slides to this podcast and presentation, the design patent would be shown on slide number 10. As the design became more and more popular, as is even the case here today in 2011, there is always people who will be fast to follow a successful design. In the case of Gorham v. White, 
it was Leroy S. White who had put out his own Gothic flatware design. Significantly, the Gorham design was made of sterling silver, whereas Leroy S. White's Gothic design was made from plated silver. The disparity in the price was significant. For instance, the Gorham spoon would retail for $40, the Gothic design for $1. A side-by-side -side comparison is set forth on slide 12 of the accompanying slide deck. And in those slides, when you do a side-by-side -side comparison, you could see that there are significant similarities, but also many differences. The determination as to whether or not the design was too close largely depends on through whose eyes we use to make that determination. Gorham, intent upon stopping White from selling and distributing the goods which he believed were too similar, pursued his case in the circuit court in the Southern District of New York. There, the main central question was through whose eyes should the determination of design patent infringement be viewed through. Ultimately, the district court decided that if we were to use the perceptions of somebody off the street, for instance, an average juror using their ordinary perceptions, that that observation is worthless because it is, quote, casual, heedless, and unintelligent. The court went on to state that the test can only be that we use the observation of a person versed in the designs in the particular trade in question. So there we have it. The question is, should we use the eyes of the ordinary observer or should we use the perceptions of the eyes of one who is versed in the trade? The lower court determined squarely that we should use the latter. The district court's holding in that case, no infringement. In other words, one who was versed in the trade would not be confused, would not be deceived, would not think that the two designs were so close that there was infringement. Gorham did not want to stop there, and Gorham pursued his case to the United States Supreme Court. And this was, in 1871, the case was before the court, was ultimately decided in 1872. Incidentally, this is the first and only Supreme Court design patent infringement case. The U.S. Supreme Court has not spoken on the issue of design patent infringement ever since. There are three takeaways that we use and are employed even to this very day from the Gorham v. White test. And I would like to go through each of those. The first takeaway is that the case before the Supreme Court, it confirms the merit of design patent protection. In 1842 was the first time that design patents appeared in the Patent Law Act. And up until then, there was some uncertainty whether or not these designs were going to be protected by the judiciary. In the case of Gorham v. White, the court began its opinion by putting to rest any uncertainty regarding the validity of design patent protection. The court stated, quote, the acts of Congress which authorized the grant of patents for designs were plainly intended to give encouragement to the decorative arts. The law manifestly contemplates that giving certain new and original appearances to a manufactured article may enhance its saleable value, may enlarge the demand for it, and may be a meritorious service to the public. So the first takeaway is design patent protection was deemed to be meritorious and warranting protection and to be enforced. The second takeaway was the decision as to whose eyes that this test should be employed through. And the question again was it should be one versed in the art or should it be an ordinary observer? Now this is a very important decision. For instance, during the case, there was testimony that was brought before the court. 
Mr. Tiffany, the famed jeweler from New York, opined as to whether or not he believed that the two designs were similar or not. Further, there was testimony that was proffered regarding his customers and the customers who would come in to purchase flatware. Ultimately, the Supreme Court concluded that we need to use the eyes of the ordinary observer. And the test that the court has set forth remains the test for design patent even today. Quote, if in the eye of an ordinary observer, giving such attention as the purchaser usually gives, the two designs are substantially the same, if the resemblance is such as to deceive such an observer, inducing him to purchase one supposing it to be the other, the first one patented infringed by the other. So the important point of this particular takeaway is that the eye of an ordinary observer. Therefore, the Supreme Court plainly rejected the lower court's determination that we should be using one who is versed in the trade, one who is accustomed to the manufacturing and design process. Rather, we should use an ordinary observer who, uses, who employs their everyday perceptions and sensibilities. Indeed, the court went so far to say that if we were to use one versed in the trade as the test, that, quote, such a test would destroy all the protection which the Act of Congress intended to give. There never could be piracy of a patent design, for human ingenuity has never yet produced a design in all its details, exactly like another, so like that an expert could not distinguish them. The ordinary observer test roots were set at that point and has been followed ever since. The third takeaway and final takeaway was the question is, what degree of similarity between the two designs was required for there to be patent infringement? In other words, how close is too close? Included in the court's proclamation as to the test for design patent infringement is the phrase that the two designs are substantially the same. Now, this is critical because it wasn't requiring exactitude. It wasn't requiring an identity of appearance. Rather, the court has grafted on a level of what we now know is a, a doctrine of equivalence. In other words, there is some degree of, of, uh, of scope which is provided to the designs. It need not to be exact. It only need to be substantially the same. Employing these three tests to the facts at hand in Gorham v. White, we can see from the slides set forth in slides 19, 20, and 21 of the attached PDF presentation is that the two designs had several noticeable and discernible visual differences between the two. For instance, in the scrolling up on the top of the flatware handle, there was differences. In some of the curls and ribbing along the side, there was differences. In the rosettes down at the bottom of the stem of the flatware, there was also differences. There were several noticeable differences, and there was also several similarities. Ultimately, the Supreme Court concluded that in the eye of an ordinary observer, that it's the overall impression, not any of the differences that would preclude infringement, but the relevant question is whether or not the overall impression between the two designs were substantially the same in the eyes of an ordinary observer. In this particular case, the Supreme Court reversed the lower court and concluded that there was infringement. So as a final thought, reviewing the holdings of Gorham v. White and its application of those holdings to the facts. We understand that the test for design patent infringement has some flexibility built into it. Whereas there is not a separate doctrine of equivalence doctrine that's applied to design patent infringement, it is rolled in to the substantially the same 
framework that's provided by the Gorham decision. In 1872, with the Impression Movement, which was afoot, we know that it was the visual impression upon the eye which was the controlling consideration. The Impressionist artists were looking at and rejecting the prior realist movements, which were trying to draw every little detail of a particular scene or in a particular portrait, rather trying to abstract out and getting to the critical essence of design. It appears that the Supreme Court was also following down that same path in the decision of Gorham v. White. As a coda to this, we can fast forward up to the 1980s, where the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals grafted on an additional test onto the ordinary observer test. That became known as the point of novelty test. On September 22nd in 2008, the en banc Federal Circuit abrogated the point of novelty test and reinstated the ordinary observer test as the sole test for infringement. They did, however, add one other additional aspect to the test, requiring that the ordinary observer be informed with the relevant prior art. If there are any further questions regarding design patent infringement, please feel free to contact me at designpatentattorney.com. Again, www.designpatentattorney.com. Also, my email address is ckarani at mhmlaw.com. More information can be found about me on our firm's website, www.mhmlaw.com. Thank you very much. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.